This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Welcome to Burn It All Down the feminist sports podcast that you definitely need. I'm Amira, and today I'm joined by Jessica and Lindsay. On this show, we're going to be talking about coaches, good coaches, bad coaches, everything in between, uh, much to do about coaching. If we're holding women to a higher standard as far as not being abusive, you know what? I'm fine with that. Plus, we will burn some things that need to be burned. 90,000 people in a football stadium right now anywhere, but especially in Florida? Again, I ask, what the fuck? Shout out the torchbearers who are leading the way during this time and let you know what's good in our worlds. On Thursday, we will be dropping an interview. I chat with Ziara King and Madison Hammond from the NWSL about what it's like to be rookies during this very unusual time. But before we get into all of that, I wanted to ask y'all about statues. Yes, statues. There was an announcement that Marta is getting a statue in Brazil. There has been more conversation about LeBron and a statue, statues. And it made me wonder uh, if you could give anybody a statue, who would it be? But really what I'm mostly curious about is where would you put it, which is a under- use conversation in it and I can say from experience when me and Jessica went on a trip in Clarksville Tennessee to try to find Pat Summit's statue that took forever because it's in the most nonsensical place in the world that location matters almost as much where would you put a statue Jess well I found out this week that Sue Bird doesn't have a statue I'm pretty sure like 98% on that and we'll talk about why she deserves one later in the show so where would I put it so I've been into Seattle one time and so sorry seattleites or whatever you call yourselves but there's like a huge public park not far from the tower and she should just be kind of like in the middle of that yes and the ease of finding it is like should be key here because it doesn't make sense if you have a statue but nobody knows that it's there Lindsay, where would you put a statue and who would you put make a statue of I know it's obvious we just talked Sue Bird. Now I'm going to say Megan Rapinoe. But it's because of that pose, that World Cup pose is just made for a statue, right? Like that arms up, chest puffed out. And I'm being real petty right now. And I know I don't want to define her by Trump. But it does happen to be in the middle of New York. But I would just love if it was across from like Trump Tower in um, New York City or something like that. Where it would be easy for a bunch of people to find it. And Trump would have to see it every single day when he is out <laughs> of the White House. And that would make me happy. I also think, I don't care where it is. I just think somebody should make a Simone Biles like tumbling because it would be the coolest statue ever. Houston could use that. 
Yes, absolutely. I mean, this is all coming on the heels of the Mellon Foundation announced that it's pledging $250 million over the next five years to change the inadequate statues we have in this country. A lot of this is part of taking down racist people and Confederate monuments and memorials and reimagining those spaces. On a lighthearted note, it's fun to think about athletes, but the built environment matters and statues actually convey values and and ideals. And so I am looking for forward to reimagining statues and I would love a Simone Biles like mid tumble a million feet off the ground so you can see how high she gets like in the middle of of that park downtown in Houston. This week on Biad it's all about coaching. There's many different ways that we want to think through coaching in this segment. And first and foremost, I want to start by talking about access to coaching. It's something we've covered a few times on the show, that the pathways to the sidelines or to, you know, the side of the court is not always linear and it's not equitable for many people. And so when we think about coaching first and foremost, there's real barriers to access to the profession. And to start... Lindsay, I want to ask you, what are the current stats looking like in terms of coaches in a league that we're all very familiar with, like the WNBA? Yeah, so for Power Plays, I ran the stats on gender and race of coaches in WNBA history. This was because this is the third year in a row that we've seen two white male coaches dueling it out in the finals. And I was kind of curious, historically, what does that mean? And I've got to say, the numbers aren't shocking for those of us, but there, you know, there's a difference between shocking and still upsetting, right? It's okay to be upset still by these numbers. So first of all, in the league's debut season, 1999, 90% of all head coaches were women. I think three of them were black women and six were white women. Starting in 1999, though, Men had already become the majority of the head coaches in the WNBA, and they have held at least half of the league's head coaching positions in 18 out of 22 seasons, including five of the last six years. So this isn't getting better. So the most prominent women's league in the world almost is predominantly coached by men. It's obviously far worse for black women. 18 black women have coached a total of 44 WNBA seasons. 21 white men have coached a total of 130 WNBA seasons, which means white men are essentially getting three times as much coaching time in the WNBA. And this goes to rehires as well. There have been eight male coaches that have been rehired as a head coach in the WNBA more than once in their career. So they've gotten more than two stints as a head coach, eight male coaches. Only one woman, and it's a white woman, the late, great Ann Donovan, has been rehired as a head coach in the WNBA more than once in her career. This was the 13th playoffs with no black women at all head coaches. We only had two black women coach in the WNBA finals in history, and neither have won a championship. It's, this, this is not good enough. Absolutely not. I mean, those are absolutely startling statistics. And sadly, they're in line with a lot of trends that we saw. And this is one of the undersides of Title IX that we don't talk about quite enough. And I've said this statistic on the show. I say it when I give any talks almost anywhere. But when we think about like college coaching statistics, for instance, before Title IX, women coaching women's sports were 95, upwards of 95% of those in coaching positions. Now they are under 50%. And so as 
positions get incentivized, get professionalized. What we see, like many other walks of life, is that women, particularly black women, get meted out of those kind of hiring pools. And what we get is the statistics that Lindsay mentioned. And it's at the professional level as that example and at the collegiate level. But it's coaching issues do not just start when you get to college. Jessica, Texas, Texas Um. football. Texas high school football. Mm -hmm. Tell us about it. Well, it's interesting to bring up Title IX because that was, what, 1973? And so there was a huge shift in Texas in the late 1960s, specifically ending in 1970, which was the desegregation of high schools, schools in general. And so what we've seen ever since then is black head coaches were pushed out. They would take all their players, but they would get rid of the coaches. And that history is still with us here in Texas, which you can't overstate how big high school football is here, right? And so in 2018, Dave Campbell's football, which is like the Bible of football in this in this state, they did a demographic study of high school football coaches in Texas. And they found that of the 253 teams in class 6A, so this is the largest schools in Texas high school, 179 of the 253 had white head coaches, 45 head coaches were black, 28 were Hispanic, one was a Pacific Islander. While more than 70% of the 6A coaches are white, just 26.4% of the students that attend those schools are white. 95% of majority white schools have a white head football coach, while 47% of majority black schools have a black head football coach. At majority Hispanic schools, only 19% have Hispanic head football coach. And so one thing we've seen is that these coaches are trying to figure out what to do about this themselves. So like we have the Hispanic Texas High School Football Coaches Association trying to make, you know, space for themselves. But this is just a historical issue within the state that's been here since around 1968 to 1970 when when they desegregated and got rid of so many of these really amazing blackhead football coaches. So it's still a problem in 2020. Absolutely. And what Jessica is describing that's happening in Texas is really a national story. It's a national story about the costs of integration in reality. One of the things that happened as Black institutions crumbled under the weight of so-called desegregation was that Black professionals got completely written out of those spaces. So this is a story that's happening in schools. When you think about schools integrating, you know, one of the massive things that happens that we don't talk about enough is that Black teachers were largely out of work because they were not being hired in these new integrated schools. In sports, this is really something that we know as a phenomenon that happens. And what it leads to is things like this today, where you have teams that are predominantly Black with white coaching staffs. And you can see, especially as they try to navigate this moment of Black Lives Matter, right? You can see the kind of fraught power tensions, especially as they are animated by the kind of racial disparities within those systems. And I think that it it really um, is important to note that right on the heels of this time period that Jessica was describing, when you had the early kind of integration of college spaces, predominantly white college spaces with Black athletes, one of the first things from 69 to 73 that they were protesting testing constantly was that they didn't have enough black coaches or black professors or a whole community outside of the labor that they were providing. So I think that those are some of the racial implications of these coaching disparities. But also, why is this important about gender disparities? Jess? Yeah, so I think the one of the huge issues that we see, especially in youth sports for girls, is that they just stop playing sports and the older they get, the worse this gets. And so coaching could be 
an answer to this, right? And so the Women's Sports Foundation released a report last year. It's called Coaching Through a Gender Lens, Maximizing Girls' Play and Potential. It's very long. You should go read it if this is something that you're interested in. And what they did is they talked to girls and their parents about what coaching strategies would help girls in particular stay in the game. And it almost feels basic when you read it. But what they found was that a lot of these coaches don't do these things. So it's like emphasizing fun, effort, skill development, have girls set personal goals that each one of them can meet, positive and encouraging feedback for both successful and unsuccessful performances, and that these are the kinds of things that will allow girls not to worry all the time, that girls in particular have, like when they start to feel all this angst and anxiety around it, that's one thing that will have them drop out. And I think this is important in that it speaks not only to the gender lens through which we view coaches, but also that we have to consider that there might be different strategies for successful coaching two different groups, right? And in this case, we're talking about girls. Absolutely. And so I think that Jess mentioned like the various alliances that are trying to work in certain sports to address these coaching disparities and issues. And we've seen this on a larger scale as well. Lindsay, what is one of the ways that you're seeing programs being put in place to address some of these coaching disparities? Yeah, well, just recently we've had, actually just this last week, Jill Ellis announced that she is a coaching mentorship program, which the idea is to double the number of professional female coaches at the elite level in the United States, because currently there are only about 50 women with A or pro level licenses. And I love this because she said like, this is now her priority above even getting back in the head coaching position is to create more of a pipeline for women in this industry and noticing how much mentorship has meant to her. And I also love that there's a concrete goal, doubling this number, right? Another thing that's been um, successful is, as I mentioned in the WNBA, that the head coaching positions are so white and male, but there is being work done on making the pipeline better. Of course, until the WNBA expands beyond 12 teams, it's going to be hard. Uh, that pipeline's just going to burst. But there were black women on the sidelines in the finals. There were three black former WNBA players, Noelle Quinn, the associate head coach for the Seattle Storm, Vicki Johnson and Tanisha Wright, assistant coaches for Las Vegas. And they're far from alone. Eight of the 12 WNBA teams have former WNBA players on their coaching staff. And five of those teams employed multiple former WNBA players as coaches this season. All in all, there are 14 former WNBA players coaching in the league, and 10 are black women. Obviously, if you're employing former WNBA players, the majority of those are naturally going to be black women because the WNBA is 88% black women. The only head coach that's a former player, though, is Sandy Brondella of the Phoenix Mercury. Um, but one, there's a policy thing helping this. Erica Ayala, who wrote a must read deep dive for this on The Athletic about kind of the need to build up this pipeline for more former WNBA players to transition into coaching, reported that the league has a new rule in 2020, which allowed teams to carry three paid assistants as opposed to two, given one of the four coaches, including the head coach, is a former WNBA player. What a great rule. It allows you to have more people on your coaching staff if you're hiring a former WNBA player. Like that is a common sense philosophy. Like more of that, please. That is actionable. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. And, you know, I think that it's important to note that 
that getting people in these positions is the beginning of these conversations, right? Retaining, sustaining, supporting, not seeing, you know, these um, steps as uh, stepping stones, right, to the men's game or other things like that. Um, being able to celebrate somebody like Kara Lawson coaching for the Celtics and then also celebrate her transition to coach, you know, at Duke in their women's basketball program. And also, I think that is really important because we know that the meaning of these coaches are important, but there's also limits to that. One of the things that happened this week um, was that Deion Sanders was announced as the new coach of Jackson State University's football team, which um, he said, I'm reviving HBCU football. And there was all the discourse around if this is what was going to bring HBCU football back or if this was going to be better, if he was going to be somehow more understanding. And it was like people forgot that, like, I don't know, like, a month and a half ago, Dion was out here tweeting that players, literally players opting out of all sports, believe the game will go on without you. This is a business. No one's bigger than the game itself. Only the refs, umps, and officials are important that you can't play without them, not you. Hashtag truth. So no, Dion Sanders is not going to completely eradicate the capitalist exploitative system that college football is built off of, right? Like he literally just told you six weeks ago. I know pandemic time is funny, but like he's on record. And then also we're wondering if this may makes it like more, I don't know, progressive. I mean, I guess in some ways, but like also the second thing he did was like, now I'm here, we got to bring bar school to Jackson State. And it was all of this stuff with it. And I, and I think that that highlights some of the limits of like a single person in, in a coaching position can have. But for more on this, because I am really interested in the HBCU angle here, I had to call up my friend, Dr. Derek White, who is the co-host of the Black Athlete Pod and the author of a tremendous book called Blood, Sweat and Tears, Jake Gaither, Florida A&M and the History of Black College Football, just to quickly ask him what to do about Dion. What do we make of this? I think Deion Sanders represents the kind of conundrum facing HBCUs. They have been materially and I think socially marginalized from the broader mainstream of college sports. And I think there is an intense desire for them to return to this limelight. In particular, old timers complain about the inability to recruit the best black athletes to their campuses. And so Dion, with his celebrity, is Jackson State's, I think, hope in some ways, and Hail Mary for them to return to glory, a program that produced four Hall of Famers, including Walter Payton. I think Deion Sanders is an interesting person to lead this charge for a number of reasons. One, it's not particularly clear that he had any kind of extensive relationships with HBCUs beyond going to Florida State University, which is, uh, which is a nearby neighbor of Florida A&M. And two, I think that he has engaged in some serious and questionable commercial relationships with Barstool, with other organizations that raise questions. And then finally, I think his prime high school academy, the prime academy that he started a few years ago, which which failed, raises concerns about whether Dion has the administrative wherewithal needed to lead his team back. That said, I think that a school like Jackson State is in particular, they have faced a particular set of challenges. They have not been good, to be perfectly honest, in the last seven or eight years, and their fan base would like to return to its glory days of the 70s, ideally, but even more recently when they were a regular champion of the SWAC. 
the SWAC has become more competitive with the addition of Florida A&M and Bethune-Cookman. And so the task laid out before Jackson State is tremendous. And so it'll be interesting to see whether Dion has the kind of coaching acumen to translate his celebrity into success on the field. So other stories that we saw this week about coaching have unfortunately reminded us about how toxic coaching can be. For more on this, I want to start with you, Jessica. What have we seen this week that we'd file under (laughs) bad coaching? Yeah, well, this is like... It's like a mini burn pile, really. The Athletic published a piece about Wichita State men's basketball head coach Greg Marshall. The school has launched an internal investigation because there are multiple cases with witnesses of Marshall physically assaulting people, including one case where he punched a player between the shoulders near his neck during practice. Like you can't. What? And he's not fired. He's just under investigation. Marshall has said, quote, and I kid you not. My coaching style isn't for everyone. (laughs) Sorry. Many players thrive in the system we've created and are energized by our team culture. For those players, I'm a motivator, a pusher, someone who can tap into their greatest tap. He used the word tap into their greatest potential. For others, I can be demanding, harsh or strict. I don't argue with those descriptions. What I am not is demeaning or abusive. We clearly just have different definitions of abusive because he has been reported three separate times for physically assaulting people. And yet he's still coaching. It's absolutely ridiculous. The the one where they said he, he like routinely parked his car behind people who might park in his spot and chased them like it's it's yeah, he chased someone down <sighs> to punch a student through the window of his car because he was mad that he parked in a spot. I mean, literally, it, if you haven't read the article, read it. It's d- disturbing on too many levels. But that was not the only disturbing coaching news this week. Lindsay. Well, this actually came out in a couple months ago in August, I think when we were on our recess, but Texas Tech women's basketball coach Marlene Stolings, a USA Today investigation found that coaches in that program punished players whose heart rates dropped below 90% capacity during playing time for more than two minutes. So players would try to elevate their heart rates artificially by jumping up and down and also avoided taking painkillers in hopes that that would impact their heart rate. Players allege that coaches and staff called them names like fat pig and disgusting. They were mocked for weight and there's also sexual harassment involved. And this is another reminder that Marlene Stolings has been fired and everyone, Brittany Brewer, who is was in the WNBA this season and, you know, former Texas Tech player came out and all former athletes kind of came out and said that that report was correct, that that was what was going on. And I'd just like to point out both male and female coaches can be abusive. A lot of times talk about abusive women's coaching People, a lot of the Title IX advocates and community often feel that female coaches are wrongfully targeted for abuse. And there have been a number of documented situations where women coaches have come forward to administrations to complain about low pay or lack of equal resources, you know, you name it, Title IX violations. And the administrations themselves have retaliated by essentially encouraging complaints about their abusive coaching as a way to get them fired and to oust them. That has happened. But that is not what all of these cases are. 
there are also a lot of cases where female coaches are downright abusive and that needs to be taken seriously. And I do not care that male coaches often get away with being abusive at higher rate. I, that is not a argument that really appeals to me, right? Like that doesn't work. Nobody, no abuse, nobody. And everyone needs to be held accountable. And if we're holding women to a higher standard as far as not being abusive, you know what? I'm fine with that. Right, exactly. Like, sign me up. Jeez. And, <laughs> yeah. and the, that story just hurts me so much, especially the heart rate thing, because there's so many ways to be abusive. And like Lindsay alluded to, there's too often that abusive coaches very easily slide into another position. I couldn't help listening to that, Lindsay, and thinking about Jordan McNair and thinking about neglect that led to a death and how DJ Durkin just, like, kept fucking coaching. And then even when he was fired, like, you know, Jess talked about it on the show, how he was then, like, hired to be, like, a special person down at Alabama under Saban, even though he's not a good coach. And if anybody wanted an update on DJ Durkin, he's assistant coach now to Lane Kiffin at, at Old Miss. How is he still in this game? It's, it's, appalling so often when we talk about coaching we do talk about how toxic or abusive it can be but we did want to stop and and have a little bit of a conversation about what good coaching looks like so if you want more of that conversation please check out our october patreon where jess Lindsay, and i break down thoughts about good coaching examples of good coaching and i chat with erica Dombach and ann cook of the penn state women's soccer team um, and the women's national team about their path to coaching and what they think makes a good coach just a reminder we have our interview episode dropping on thursday when this episode airs, many people will have just celebrated Indigenous Peoples Day. And as part of that, I'm really excited to talk to Madison Hammond, who just became the first Native woman to play in the um, NWSL. I also talk with both Madison and Ziara King. We welcome her back to the show about what it's like to be rookies in this very unusual season, particularly as black women who, while they're rookies, are also demonstrating that they are leaders off the pitch in terms of pulling the NWSL along in terms of racial issues. You know, you get to the league and you realize just how few black and brown girls there are in the league. And it's like, whoa. And then you get asked the question of like, why aren't black and brown girls playing soccer? And it's like, they are playing soccer. They are playing soccer. Please repeat it with me. They are I'm new, like not everybody knows me, like should I say these things? But then I was thinking about it, like this will not only affect me, but will affect so many people after me. And so like, it only feels right to stand up for these things to then blaze a path for Black women to come after this. Be sure to check your feed on Thursday for the full interview. All right, y'all, we have a burn pile of updates. It's if all the things that we have burned before are like slowly simmering, this is the burn pile where we're just throwing kind of Kindle on it and keeping the fire burning because things are still freaking burnable. So for our first updated burn, I'm going to kick it off. I Last week I talked about some of the Title IX 
things and cuts that were happening as one of the what's ugly in sports return and I just wanted to give a brief update on the University of Minnesota that has now completed these cuts which includes indoor track and field it includes 98 athletes overall um the reason why I want to particularly draw our attention back to this is that these cuts are now were voted on they passed by just a two vote margin but it also comes on the heels of Minnesota announcing the full cost of their testing program. They didn't announce a number because they don't want to, but they indicated that not only they were making these cuts, obviously because of the pandemic circumstances, but because the testing program for bringing Big Ten football back has put them in even more of a deficit. And so these things that we had mentioned on the show that we were watching happening from university to university, they're here, they're happening, it's infuriating. Um, And I wanted to just give an update about that. The other update I have is about the NFL and COVID tests, which um, (laughs) have not gotten better, shockingly. As of this morning, we're recording on Sunday morning, the Patriots and Broncos game has been postponed again because the Patriots facility is shut down again because there's another positive again. If you're looking for more agains, there is yet another positive out of the Tennessee Titans facility. This time it is a staff member. And it also comes on the heels of an announcement that after this facility was shut down last week, a group of players still got together at a high school football field to continue to train together, even though the point was to stay away from each other. So here we are. And to sprinkle a little more goodness on that, there are reports that both the Bears and Kansas City now has positive COVID tests. And if you remember, Kansas City played who last week? Oh, that's right, the Patriots. After that game, Gilmore tested positive. So, you know, I don't know. We're, we're just kind of watching this roll merrily along and it's racking up more and more positives as the season goes down. I honestly don't know how we finish the season, but they seem dead set on doing it despite the fact that they're having COVID outbreaks across the country in various facilities. I just want to burn it down. Burn. Burn. All right, Jessica, what are you updating us with? (laughs) More COVID in college football. So according to the New York Times, at least 915 new coronavirus deaths and 58,539 new cases were reported in the United States on Friday, October 9th. Over the past week, there have been an average of 47,782 cases per day, an increase of 12% from the average two weeks earlier. There has been a nationwide increase since mid-September. We're back in a trouble spot. And despite all of this, the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, a Trump sycophant, and if he's not the most kiss-ass of the Trump flunkies, he's definitely vying for the position. He announced this past week that stadiums in Florida can return to full fan capacity. Florida has famously struggled in its response to COVID, so what the fuck, I ask you. It looks like for now, the three NFL teams in the state will maintain limited capacity at their stadiums. But this weekend... After the University of Florida lost their away game to Texas A&M, Florida's head coach, Dan Mullen, said that next week when the Gators host LSU, quote, absolutely want to see 90,000 in the swamp. The swamp's a nickname for their stadium. Mullen, see, thinks that A&M Stadium at 25% capacity, around 25,000 people, helped their team beat his team. 
I mean, I'm not jazzed about the 25,000 number in College Station, which isn't that far from where I live, but 90,000 people in a football stadium right now anywhere, but especially in Florida? Again, I ask, what the fuck? To tie a bow on this, Mullen went on to explain out loud and publicly, one, he doesn't know anything about COVID, and or two, gives no fucks about the community of Gainesville, which I'll just note here, has a major hospital because it's tied to the university. Someone near and dear to me got a double lung transplant at that very hospital earlier this year and had to live in that community in the spring because you don't just get new lungs and then get to go home. To say that I'm fearful of a packed stadium is to undersell it. Anyway, Mullen said, quote, I know our governor passed that rule, so certainly, hopefully, the university administration decides to let us pack the swamp. Perhaps Dan Mullen should consider that his team lost not because A&M had people in the stands, but rather because he's a fucking terrible coach. Though no props for A&M's Jimbo Fisher. I don't, I don't, I want to be clear on that. So this week, I want to say fuck Ron DeSantis, fuck Dan Mullen. So many of my family live in Florida and they're in or near that age group that is most vulnerable to COVID. And I just, when am I ever going to be able to see my family again? This is so distressing on so many levels. I have personal ties to this, but also just what the fuck are these people doing? I just want to burn all this shit. So I'm just burn. 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 All right, Linz, take us home. All right. I've got two quick burns here. uh, Burn updates. First of all, Yelena Luchenka, the Belarus basketball player who was imprisoned for a 15 day sentence due to protesting in Belarus. Her lawyer has reported that she's in a cell with three other prisoners. She's struggling to sleep because of her knee injury. She was actually leaving Belarus to get that knee injury treated when she was arrested. And she hasn't been allowed to shower. The prisoners have to wash in their cell. So she's looks now like she's going to have to be in prison for the full 15 days. And this is the Belarus government sending a direct message to athletes not to use their influence. So burn. Let's get burn. 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 And then World Rugby. Uh, Jess updated us a few weeks ago on horrific new guidelines they were trying to implement that would outright ban trans women from participating in the sport at all levels. Well, Despite public outcry, despite many organizations, up to 100 sporting organizations around the world coming out against this ban, and despite the fact that the vote wasn't supposed to be until next month, World Rugby announced this week that it has adopted these new guidelines. So it's just sneaking that in. So it's becoming the first global sport governing body to issue a blanket ban against trans athletes absolutely unfathomably horrific burn burn autumn colors means it's getting cold i love fall but it's like mull wine so spicy and sexy I love long fireside chats. (laughs) Speaking of warmth and fireside, Burn It All Down will host its first fireside chat open to patrons in the top three tiers. You'll get to talk to all of us in an informal and casual setting about whatever you'd like. 
Our first fireside chat will be Friday, October 16th at 7 p.m. Eastern. It may not be sexy, but it'll be fiery as hell. After all that burning, let's light a different flame. Let's light a torch and and hit this relay for our torch bearers of the week. So first up, who is our clay court champ of the week, Linz? That would be Iga Svitek, who beat American Sophia Kennan to win the first major title of her career, the French Open, with a dominant 6-4-6-1 victory in barely an hour and 24 minutes. Iga is only 19 years old. She's the first Polish player to win a major title, and she's the first woman to win a major in more than 40 years without having cracked the world's top 47. She's only ranked number 54. And while there were a lot of people missing from the French Open, she did beat Simona Halep on the way in dominating fashion. So congrats to her. What a breakthrough win. Absolutely. All right, we got some runners doing some really dope runner things. Jess, who are our pavement pushers of the week? Bridget Kozguy defended her London Marathon title, winning with a time of 2 hours, 18 minutes, and 58 seconds. And Ethiopia's Latesen Bet Gide ran 14 minutes, 6.65 seconds to break the women's 5,000-meter world record, which had stood since 2008. Impressive. I will tell you our most impressive streak of the week goes to the Australian women's cricket team, which reached 21 successive ODIs. That's One Day Internationals, a big cricket tournament. They are absolute legends in the women's game, and this just confirms that. And now, can I get a drum roll, please? Our torchbearers of the week go to uh, multiple people all within the umbrella of the WNBA. So let's start with Sue Bird, Jessica. So Sue Bird, who turns 40 this week and is the league's oldest player, won her fourth WNBA championship. She is the only player ever in the WNBA to win titles in three different decades for comparison. Only two NBA players have done that, Tim Duncan and John Saley, and the WNBA is much younger than the NBA. Bird also averaged 11 assists in the final, tying Nikki Teasley for the highest assist average in finals history, and her 9.2 assists per game for the entire playoffs was also her best ever in the playoffs. How, Sue? How? Amazing. And also, we want to shout out the Storm. Linz? Yeah, they absolutely dominated in this playoffs. They've now won two of the last three WNBA championships and have the core to just continue to win. One of my favorite stories is they used last year when Stewart and Bird, uh, Sue Bird were out. Dan Hughes says this isn't a year off. This is a year to get better. Every single person on their roster got better and it showed when Stewie and Bird got back. And shout out to their owners who we love here at Bird and All Down. They are the only all-female ownership group in the WNBA that we recognize. <laughs> And it was great to see them on court celebrating with their wives. And it was just a big moment that ownership doesn't look like you think it has to look. 
Absolutely. And shout out to the Aces for, you know, a tremendous run as well. And really want to take the time to shout out all of the WNBA. You started the season going into the Wubble saying we're also dedicating this to say her name to Breonna Taylor. Uh, you were unapologetic. You had the audacity to show up and demand uh, the spotlight, demand to be heard. You played your first season under the new CBA, even though it wasn't the season you thought you had. It has been a tremendous, unprecedented summer, but you've shown on and off the court why you guys are absolutely the blueprint for athletic activism, absolutely the leaders that we need right now, absolutely one of the most exciting leagues to keep an eye on, your ratings while everybody else has shit ratings, your being up 68% is a testament to that, but beyond just the data and the numbers, the women and the non-binary folks in the WNBA are absolutely, absolutely torchbearers. And if you needed to hammer that home in any other way, check out Alicia Clark summing this season up. It's a championship for, for little black girls and black women across this country, honestly. Um, you know, I, I said it after the game when I was letting it all soak in, like I hope each and every one of them feel just as victorious in this moment as I do. Um, Because you should, we see you, we hear you, we acknowledge you and your life matters. And that was what the season was about. So to be able to win a championship with that message, with that on our minds, man, it's special and, and really historic. All right, y'all, what's good in your world, Lindsay? Oh, I was hoping you would not go to me first because I forgot to write things down. I know I actually thought of things during this week. Okay, so first of all, my dog has just been extra special, amazing. What is not good <laughs> is parrots. <laughs> I do have to mention that I am a... So I'm staying with my aunt and uncle in North Carolina right now, and they're out of town for the weekend. And so I am babysitting another family member who went out of town with them their parrot first of all I knew that this person had a parrot when I was growing up so I was like wow they got a new parrot no same parrot this parrot is 30 years old its name is baby it is not a baby and parrots can live until they're 80 years old and I gotta say just trying to feed this parrot I got bit so many times this is parrots are what is bad um but what's good is i'm surrounded (laughs) surrounded by dogs also shireen listen up i have been enjoying the crap out of my basic pumpkin spice uh drinks this week and savoring every moment of it because i need a little joy in my life and that's where i'm getting it shireen at this very moment is hate tweeting about pumpkin spice samosas that she found (laughs) (laughs) just just so we all understand what's happening shireen let me have this joy stop (laughs) (laughs) 
I will go next. I have booked a hotel with my IHG points, the Kimpton. I love Kimptons. Anyways, I've booked a hotel to get away for a few days this week to write my last chapter of my book. And I just was like, guess what, y'all? You need to get the fuck out of your house and go finish your book. And so I will be going and I get to use my away weekender bag that I got when they had a 50% off sale because nobody can travel. And I like stare at it and like, what can I possibly travel to and use my bag? And now I have a reason I'm going to mostly put books in it and then go to this hotel and write for hopefully three straight days and, and get this done. Um, so that is what I'm very excited about. That's my what's good right now. Jessica. Yes. So I got a flu shot this week and it felt good to like be participating in the community in that way. I made two spoon cakes this week, which I texted Martin to let him know that update. They were both wonderful. One was blueberry and one was plum. And then Aaron loves to like make Halloween decorations. So we have this one that we've had for years where he did the strangers things alphabet, like Winona Ryder does. And then he has the LED lights and then he programs it to flash out happy Halloween and then to like crazy flash with his raspberry pie. He does this thing. It's really, really cool. But then the new one this year is that he bought a projector and like a see-through curtain and he projects what looks like a ghost onto the curtain. So it looks like there's a ghost in our window in our house. It's like the haunted house at Disney world or whatever. And it's really cool. And now I want him to buy like a projector and curtain for every single window in the house, which is not (laughs) financially feasible. Uh, But I am just like really into this. Uh, So Kudos to Aaron. And then the last thing is this week, I get to early vote for going in person. I cannot wait to cast my ballot. A few things to keep an eye out this week. Baseball playoffs are among us. And this week, we'll be seeing the Braves and the Dodgers face off, as well as the Rays and the Astros. So um, baseball is happening. (laughs) And so there will be a few games on this week. And the thing that I perhaps am most looking forward to, there's a slate of NWSL games this weekend. The Orlando Pride play the North Carolina Courage. And the OL Reign take on the Utah Royals. So you can listen to our episode with Madison Hammond and Ziara King, and then you can watch them play each other Saturday night at 8 p.m. Check it out. That's it for this episode of Burn It All Down. On behalf of me, Jess, and Lindsay, thank you so much for joining us. This episode was produced by award winner Martin Kessler. Um, Shelby Weldon does our website and our transcripts and social media. You can find us on Facebook, on Twitter, and on Instagram. If you want to subscribe, check out Burn It All Down on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, all the places. You know the deal. Uh, For more information of the show, transcripts, links, all of that jazz, check out burnitalldownpod.com. You can email us. You can shop on our Teespring store. It is sweater weather. So pick up a hoodie or a blanket. Use the code FALLFLAMES for 15% off your owner. If you're a Patreon, check your email for an extra special discount code for you there. As always, thank you for your support. It means the world to us. From all of us here at Burn It All Down, burn on, not out.